0: Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. And He Himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body in Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working, by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. And thus far, the reading of God's Word and all God's people said, We've been considering the unity of the church as Paul is addressing this to the Christians at Ephesus and... By implication, of course, to us as well. He has called on all of us to endeavor, to work hard, to keep that unity in the bond of peace. Verses 11 through 16 are now going to expand upon this theme as he calls us to maturity in Christ. While some aspects of maturity take time, others, other aspects can occur rather rapidly just by thinking about them and having a plan and self-consciously uh, determining to act more grown up, to do the things we ought to do. I'm sure you've had those conversations with your children as parents, or perhaps your parents have, them, have had them with you. So it's time, someone might say, it's time to grow up. It's time to start doing this or to stop doing that. You've entered a new phase, and so it's time to grow up. God has given gifts to His church to enable and promote maturity. Maturity, among other things, I was just thinking about this this week, and maybe this is a little different way to think about or perhaps simply articulate what maturity is. It's the ability to look ahead and to adjust your current behavior accordingly. To figure out if I do this, this is what I can expect as a result. This is going to be the outcome. The Bible and family and church, that church community should enable us to see further ahead than we otherwise would on our own. Ten year olds have a hard time seeing past next Friday. And if the only people they talk to are other 10-year-olds, that's not going to help them much. But that's why God gave them parents. That's why we as adults, it's not just 10-year-olds, by the way, it's adults do, tend to do the same thing, that we don't rely on each other. And we certainly are not as good as we should be about going to the Word of God. The Bible tells us all kinds of things in advance. If you do this, here's what you can expect to happen. The book of Proverbs is a great example of that, but really the whole Bible does that. We get to see the biggest picture, the whole story, how the story is going, where it's going, why it's doing what it's doing, what we're called to do. There's so much information here that if we will look at that and we'll say, you know, if I keep doing this, then I can expect these things to happen. They, They might be good things, they might be bad things. But if we will take the Bible seriously... And I'd like to suggest that even good Christian people don't take the Bible as seriously as they should. If we will listen to those who are genuinely older and wiser, then we can mature faster and better. The list of church officers found in verse 11, I don't believe, is an exhaustive list. For example, elders and deacons are not specifically mentioned. We find those mentioned in other places in Scripture. The point of of these listed officers is not so that we can know who the special people are. Rather, God is telling us that certain people have been assigned certain roles so that every single Christian in the whole church can be prepared and equipped for ministry. That's the message of this text. The goal of this service is the building up of the body and of our growing up to be unified, to be together, to be mature, to be Christ-like members of the church. What kind of unity would we have if all of us were perfect, if all of us were completely mature, completely Christ-like? There would not be any conflict, right? So to the degree that we are maturing and growing, one of the great delights of this father, of this parent, is when we, and and all of you will, will see this, is when your children grow up and they become adults, is when they actually really like each other, and you have this adult relationship with each other. Sometimes when they're young and you're constantly breaking up a squabble or a quarrel or a this or that, You wonder, are we ever going to get there? But when we do, what a delight to see that maturity setting in, to have adult conversations. Well, that's what we want to promote, of course, in the church. Unfortunately, many have come to think that the majority of Christians are simply passive observers. Or that church is just the place you go to sit and listen to sermons, or to come and sit and not listen to sermons, as the case may be. Um, I actually had someone from a number of years ago argue that there are different classes of Christians and that some of them are simply unable to serve. Well I understand there are babies that can't do as much as others, so there are there are different levels of maturity, but we there's no place in Scripture that would suggest that somehow you you can remain in that state and be healthy. We have already seen that a most basic principle is that to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Every single one of us, if we're Christians, have been given gifts by God, by Christ. Every one of us has work to do in the church. All the gifts, including the offices of the church, are given to lead to maturity and to unity. Now, there is a common danger in pursuing unity, and that is that many are tempted to throw out the doctrine of the Bible in the name of achieving unity. We have been told, for example, many times in the past that we should tear down the walls of doctrine. Doctrine divides people, and if we could just get rid of the doctrine, we could all get along, right? Right? But this is a false unity and is completely contrary to everything that Paul is teaching in this passage, or for that matter, in this, in this entire letter. All kinds of malignant concessions have been made in an effort to find a shortcut to unity. We are called to unity in the truth. As we are about to see, verse 11 established the absolute necessity of sound teaching as the basis for the unity that we're called to. Paul lays this out by simply, excuse me, by the example of extraordinary and the ordinary offices of the church, which are responsible for the transmission of the truth. So let's look first, we're just going to look at this, mainly at this verse 11 today, this list of offices, and I just want to make a few comments and observations about each of these offices and the role they play in bringing about Christian maturity and unity. So the extraordinary offices, another way to express this would be to speak of the temporary versus the permanent officers or offices, Some were for the purpose of establishing the church, and others are for the purpose of maintaining the church. The first office mentioned is that of apostle. Jesus created the office of apostle. He appointed men to it. The Greek word apostolos means messenger or one who is sent. In this case, the apostles are messengers that have been sent by Christ himself. Here's what the Apostle Paul said about it in Galatians one one. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. There are several necessary qualifications for this foundational office. And the reason what I'm about to go through I think is important, it will become more evident as we go here. But if we get this wrong, and I think a lot of people have it's created a number of problems in the church and continues to do so. It did in the, in the first century, continues to do so now. So here are the necessary qualifications for someone to be an apostle. First, he must be a firsthand witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, an eyewitness. Paul writes, am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord. 1 Corinthians 9.1 Where did Paul see Jesus? On the road to Damascus. The risen Lord. 1 Corinthians 15.7-8 After that, he was seen by James, then all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due season. So, to be an apostle, you have to have seen Jesus. The risen Christ. Now that's not enough. There are other qualifications. Other people saw the risen Christ, but one of the things that to be an apostle you had to have had is that encounter with Jesus in his resurrected state. Second, he must have been called and commissioned or sent by Jesus himself. There were and are many who claim to be apostles. Paul had not just had a vision of Jesus on the roads to Damascus. He had actually seen and heard the Lord. You remember in Acts 26, as he's recounting the story, Jesus said to him, to Paul, But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen, and and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. So here is Paul's commission, for example, to go and to be sent by Jesus to do this particular task. Third, an apostle was a man who had received a supernatural revelation of the truth. Paul has already mentioned this in Ephesians 3, verses 2 and 3, "...if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery." In Galatians, Paul makes this claim in uh, chapter 1, verses 10-12. through For do I now persuade men, or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. But I make known to you, brethren, that uh, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we can look at the the other apostles and see obviously we're going to see this in a moment in terms of scripture itself that God is speaking to and through the apostles. So the fourth requirement, since an apostle received direct revelation from God, he also speaks with authority and when he speaks in scripture, he speaks infallibly. Like foreign ambassadors who speak for a king or a president, the apostles were ambassadors for Christ. And they also spoke with his authority. The early church recognized this authority, and thus, as the church worked out and developed the canon or list of books and letters that make up our Bible, the canon of Scripture, the ultimate test was whether a book or letter was written with apostolic authority. It either had to be written by an apostle himself, or else it had to clearly contain the direct teaching of of the apostles. Only the apostles could speak with authority and infallibility. And fifth, apostles were able to perform miracles. This is confirmed in Hebrews two four, where we are told that the word was quote first spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him god also bearing witness both with signs and wonders with various miracles throughout the book of acts and by the way the book of acts is more when we don't abbreviate it is the acts of the apostles these were the things the apostles were doing we see this and it was important since there were many like today who claimed to be apostles but Paul describes them this way in 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen 13-14, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for Satan himself transforms him, himself into an angel of light. And so the Bible in the New Testament refers to the signs of the apostles. I think these are the miraculous things they were doing, and we're going to see in the New Testament that those began to fade out. So why, for example, does Paul uh, tell Timothy to take a little wine for his stomachache? Why didn't he just heal him? We see, well, I'd say the more ordinary things begin to happen. By the time we get to the book of James, for example, if anyone's sick, he doesn't say go find someone with a gift of healing, he says, call for the elders, let them confess your sins, anoint with oil, and pray for them. That's the ordinary things. The extraordinary thing was were the signs of the apostles, the works of the apostles that were calling attention to this dramatic thing that God was doing in the initiation of the new covenant. Now, that leads to an issue that has come up in church history, and that is the question of apostolic succession. Many have claimed apostolic succession. This is the uninterpreted transmission. Excuse me, I said I misspoke. The uninterrupted transmission, the idea of an uninterrupted transmission of spiritual authority from the apostles through successive popes and bishops, specifically taught by the Roman Catholic Church, but also held to by several Protestant groups in. Varied forms. After Judas defected, uh, uh, the disciples elected and appointed Matthias to replace him. But then the Apostle Paul shows up, and he was accepted as an Apostle by way of the unusual experience that he had with Jesus. It took some major convincing to persuade them, the others to accept him, but they did. 1 Corinthians 15, 7-10. after that... As we already quoted, uh, Jesus was seen by James and all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of time. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. After James is put to death by King Herod, we read about that in the 12th chapter of Acts. No successor for him was appointed by the church. That's because the apostolate was temporary. The whole argument for the papacy is based upon a false and unproven premise. It argues that Peter was the first apostle and bishop in Rome, and then he appointed a successor who in turn appointed his successor. There is no valid evidence that Peter was ever a bishop in Rome. So there's much more that can be said about all that, but we have lots of people running around today claiming to be apostles. And I would suggest that, that, again, lots of evidence that that's not the case, partly because of the requirements of what it takes to be an apostle. Uh, If anyone saw the movie, which I would recommend to you, it's an old movie with Robert Duvall called The Apostle. I remember not wanting to watch it when I saw the previews because I, I, I was worried about where it was going, but a friend of mine who I trusted recommended that I see it. But it is a good example of this character who, who decides for himself that he is an apostle. He baptizes himself in a river all by himself, and he sets out to do this, this work. Well, that's nonsense. That's not what we read about in the Bible and it's more than nonsense. It's like all falsehood. It's dangerous. Second, he mentions prophets. A prophet was someone who was moved by the Holy Spirit to speak on behalf of God. In Second Peter, I think this is one of the better examples of a description of this, chapter 1. It says, "For We did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For He received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to Him from the excellent glory. This is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. So this is Peter talking. And so we have the prophet's word confirmed. Excuse me, the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Even the apostles themselves were subject to the Old Testament prophets because the, the Old Testament is the record of those prophetic voices. This was the authority, this was the standard. So for example, in Acts 17 when Paul is at Berea and he's speaking, here's an apostle speaking, and we're told a couple, several things in Acts 17:11, those who were there received him Received the word from him with all readiness of mind, enthusiasm. They were happy to hear him. And then what does it say they did with the apostles' teaching? They searched the scriptures to see if these things were so. What scriptures? It was the Old Testament. It was the prophets. So even the apostles are subject to the authority of the Old Testament. That was the test they had to meet. So before the New Testament was canonized, there were some with prophetic gifts. Again, in this early formation of the church, there were a number of things going on that were temporary. However, once the New Testament Gospels and Epistles were written, the office of prophet was no longer necessary. I think, again, we see a similar thing with the gift of healing. Since we have the whole Bible, we now have, we still have... The Apostles and the Prophets, right here. They're right here, today. We read them today. We heard from the Apostles and Prophets today. So these foundational offices did their extraordinary work, and we have been given a permanent record of their authoritative and infallible words Now therefore, Paul writes, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Ephesians 3, 4 and 5, the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, has now been been revealed by the Holy Spirit Uh, by the Spirit, to His holy apostles and prophets. 2 Peter 3, 2, That you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. So you see how the prophets and the apostles are always put together. They're the foundation. So the need for prophets ended once we had the Old and New Testaments, and the Spirit now speaks to us through the Scriptures. Now, I'm going to move much faster here through the ordinary offices. Even while the extraordinary office of apostle was present and operating, the ordinary offices of the church began to appear rather quickly. And in fact, some of the apostles also served in some of these ordinary offices. Just as an example, Paul was a missionary or an evangelist, and Peter refers to himself as a fellow elder. In Acts 6, we see the development, I think, of the office of deacon let me mention each of these other ordinary offices rather quickly. Missionary or evangelist, I think those terms are synonymous. We we use the word missionary, but if you think about what an evangelist does or what a missionary does, they're they're identical. Um, A missionary is a person sent by a church into an area to carry on evangelism and other activities. They are evangelists who are sent on a mission. These are men who were and are ordained, or that is, they are set apart and sent out by a church to preach, to teach, and to establish churches. This is part of the work the apostles did, but evangelists and missionaries, they needed more of them as the church grew. The apostles couldn't be everywhere, so they began to send out more and more men to do this work. And so, uh, we read, for example, Paul writes to Titus, For this reason I left you in Crete that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. There seems to have been both long-term and short-term missionaries or evangelists. A mission gets established and then a more permanent work of the church takes over. As we already mentioned today, Pastor Volkov and Kunitayev are on their way tomorrow to Uzbekistan to do this very kind of work. Pastor Volkov is a missionary sent by our church and as a result, He represents us. We're sending Him. We're financing that. We're praying for Him. We, the church, have sent Him. He's not out there all by Himself coming up with this on His own. He has some accountability. He's under authority. He's commissioned. He was, we, we know something about Him. We know His theology. We know what He's going to do. When He gets back, He'll report to us. Tell us what He's done. Tell us what's going on. Tell us what the needs are. It's a way of extending the reach of the church around the world. Pastors and teachers. These are the shepherds and feeders of the sheep. Their primary work is to instruct publicly and privately using the words of the apostles and prophets. The Bible. Like the evangelists, pastors and teachers. We're also taking up the work of the apostles. A division of labor occurs as the church grows and expands. Pastors and teachers, and I think those are, uh, the way that is written here in this text are referring to one office. Sometimes it's even kind of hyphenated, pastor-teachers. Pastors and teachers do the ordinary work of raising children to be adults. Their ministry of word and sacrament is routine, but it takes a variety of forms. Doctrine and discipline, public and private. Paul told the Colossians, Jesus we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man mature or perfect in Christ. That's the goal. This is what pastors do. Laboring to produce maturity in the flock is the work of the shepherd. To be sure that you are no longer children tossed by every wind of doctrine. And we'll look further at that passage next time. And I want to conclude with this today. A couple of years ago, I wrote a short description of the work of a pastor. It's an awkward thing to do, but I did it for the sake of other pastors Who might not be able to say some of this. Uh, As Paul asked for some indulgence once, one time when he was describing his own work, I ask you to indulge me for a moment as I offer an excerpt of what I wrote about the work of the pastor. And I'm not so much, I think all of you already know this, uh, but I know there are a lot of churches where I think people don't know this about pastors. There are a lot of assumptions made. But remember, this is when God gave these offices and gifts to the church, it's because he thought we needed it. I've pastored for over 33 years and am currently blessed by an incredibly supportive session, diaconate, and congregation. But the best church is still a hospital for sinners. I've been involved with all kinds of people and, sadly, with almost every kind of sin you can imagine. I don't write about this with any sense of pride, but like a mother, sometimes pastors would like for the world to have some sense of what it is we actually do. I think many, if not most pastors, will identify with and confirm what I'm about to say. A church is like a giant foster home. We get whoever God sends our way. Most people bring assets, but everyone brings liabilities. There's the baggage of the past, and there are the sins that have not even yet been committed. There's shame and guilt for their own sins, that is, the pastor's, and there are the effects and fallout from the sins of others against them, and then also for each of you. You have your own sins, and then the effects and fallouts of the sins of others that have been committed against you over the years. There are the glorious successes... Success stories, there are those who seem to make little or no progress, and then there are those who completely crash and burn. The big family we call the church is messy and full of all kinds of troubles and problems. As a young man, eyeing the pastoral ministry, I imagine the joys of study, preaching, teaching, fellowship, camps, and the like— Thankfully, there is a fair amount of of those kinds of things that occupy my time. However, the the vast majority of what pastors do, along with our sessions, is private, and much of it is unpleasant. Again, I think parents can identify with this. We are like medics in a plague zone. We can't give a report each week on who we met with, what we dealt with, who said what, etc., We deal with the mature and the immature, the godly and the ungodly, the nice and the not-so-nice, the pure and the wicked. Sometime back I gave up saying that I can't be shocked. I've seen and heard a lot, but people still shock me. Pastors are manipulated and lied to by the best manipulators and liars We've discovered that you can't try, uh, you can't try to help troubled and needy people without running the risk of being used. We're often damned if we do and damned if we don't. We're second guessed by a few, some very well intentioned, regarding situations where they have only part of the story. Other, uh, our motives, counsel, and decision are challenged by some who are in no position to fairly evaluate but who think they are. A few of the individuals and families we try to love and help are beyond our help, and they resent us for trying. In their anger or bitterness, some of them lash out and have no restraints. They're free to spin and twist our words and declare an injustice to the world, to the world wide web. There are a few of them who can even turn our how do you do into something sinister. Any attempt to explain or defend ourselves is quickly declared to be arrogant. Even so, pastors have significant limitations on what can be said in return. So if you don't trust a man, don't make him an elder or a pastor, because he will, of necessity, know things about a lot of people, perhaps about you, things you don't want others to know. He will have to make judgments about situations, that are extremely difficult and complicated, and he will not always be in a position to tell you why or how he made those decisions. Like parents, pastors and elders are fallible. We're learning a lot as we go, that is, we're growing. Like everyone else, our hindsight is much better than our foresight. But let me assure you of something else. These fallible pastors and elders, for the most part, ordinary men who love Christ church and sacrifice daily on a on a daily basis to feed guide and protect the flock they lay awake in anguish they pray they go when called they weep they fight the good fight their ministry covers the whole range of human sin and frailty and most of their work is unseen like parents though we have reciprocal joys that make it all worth it. That is why the book of Hebrews admonishes us, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable to you. I know many pastors and teachers, and I can assure you that the vast majority of them feel their own inadequacy for the job. Perhaps you felt that as parents. And so, I have often found great comfort in these words from the Apostle Paul. And I close with these. 2 Corinthians 3, 4-6. Imagine, this is the Apostle Paul saying this. And we have such trust through Christ Word, God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Let's pray. Father, bring your church to full maturity. How it suffers because of childishness and lack of wisdom. Those who profess to be your people are tossed too often, to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. Give gifted officers who will equip the saints for the work of ministry so that the body of Christ will be built up. We have no apostles, prophets, and prophets in that extraordinary sense. But you have given your church today pastors and teachers. Equip them to equip your people. May they see their task not as making people dependent upon them, but as establishing the people to stand in Christ and to minister to others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord's Day is a day of rest, of renewal, and corporate Bible study and worship are forms of rest because they feed us and they restore us. An afternoon nap's pretty nice, too. As loyal followers of Jesus, we have denied ourselves and recognized that He determines our priorities because He loves us and He knows what's good for us. Man lives not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And God in His kind providence has provided the church and given her pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for service. Most people, out of a sense of duty and obligation, get up every day and go to work or go to school, even if they don't feel like it. But on the Lord's Day, we have the special privilege of gathering with God's people, with the household of God. And we get to study God's word and worship him together as we gather around the family table. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Like other Christian commitments, the decision to do these things should be a one-time decision, not a weekly decision. It's who we are. This, uh, as this godly habit is established, it becomes new and normal And it is inculcated in our children so that not attending Bible study and worship feels like the odd thing. And so, we're called by Him to honor and worship Him and to serve Him with gladness. Therefore, it is both the attitude of the heart and the location of the body that shows respect for Him. This is the place where we are to grow up into Him who is the head, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Amen. Almighty God, who in former times led our fathers from a wilderness to a wealthy place, and did set our feet in a large room, We humbly ask you to give your grace to us, their children, that we may also prove ourselves to be a people mindful of your favor and glad to do your will. Bless our land with sound doctrine, righteous laws, godly people. Defend our liberties and preserve our unity. Save us from violence, discord, and confusion, from pride, arrogance, and from every evil way. Lord, endue us with a spirit of wisdom those whom we entrust in your name with the authority to govern us so that there may be peace and that we may honor you in our land. Lord, bless your church that we might be found faithful. Bless this church that we would be diligent in our calling to grow up and be mature in Christ. So bless us now. Bless this day, this day of rest, and bless our feast, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor, glory, and majesty forever and ever. Amen. Amen.